Welcome to Let's Talk CP, the new podcast series about all things cerebral palsy, presented by the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Each episode features different clinicians, parents, people with CP, and other experts talking about ways to help you better navigate your journey with CP. I'm Jason Benetti, play-by-play announcer of the Chicago White Sox and ESPN, and I have CP. Good morning. This is Cynthia Fursina with the Cerebral Palsy Foundation welcoming you to a new year and a new season of Let's Talk CP 2022. I'm super excited to be able to kick off our new season and our new year with amazing two guests from Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, I have with me Dr. Tom Novacek, Associate Medical Director for the James R. Gage Center for Gait and Motion Analysis and a Pediatric Orthopedic Surgeon, as well as Dr. Andrew Georgiatis, Pediatric Orthopedic Surgeon and Clinical Manager, also for the Center of Gait and Motion Analysis. Welcome, doctors. We are thrilled and excited to have you here with us today, especially starting off this new year and the interest and in all of the questions that we get from families around what you do about gait, gait analysis, and we're excited to have this conversation today. So welcome, Dr. Novacek and Dr. Georgiatis. I thought before we began, we could have each of you introduce yourselves individually and then tell us a little bit about what you do. Dr. Novacek, would you like to uh, begin? Thanks so much, Cynthia. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. As Cynthia mentioned, I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. I do work at Gillette Children's in St. Paul, Minnesota. We are a private hospital, non-for-profit, but we have an association with the University of Minnesota. So in that role, I'm a professor of orthopedics at the university. I'm also currently the president of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. That's wonderful. We're, we're thrilled that you were able to make the time today to be able to join us. And, and Dr. Georgiatis, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks again for having us uh, talk to you today. I'm really excited about it. So I'm Andy Georgiatis. I'm one of the managers of the Motion Laboratory here at Gillette Children's Hospital. And I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon with an academic interest in cerebral palsy and difficulties dilation in that condition, as well as deformities and limb lengthening procedures in the lower extremity. And I work at Gillette, not being from this part of the country, specifically because I identified it as a place where people like Dr. Novacek were exceptionally thoughtful and careful in their making decisions. So I begged for a job here. And that's why we're going. Thank you so much. I think, you know, that's a great lead in to hearing a little bit from both of you about what makes Gillette a unique place. I know personally, I have a daughter with cerebral palsy who had surgery at Gillette, which was amazing. And so it really is a unique place drawing patients and families, not just from the local area, but actually from all over the world. And it would be wonderful to hear from you, Dr. Novacek, what makes Gillette so unique? Well, I will underscore what Andy said about uh, Gillette. I'm originally from Wisconsin, wanted to come back to the upper Midwest, really didn't know much about Gillette at the time. I started there 30 years ago. I stayed there because the shoe 
fit, and it's been very good for me and my ability to take care of patients. The interesting thing about Gillette is it's quite an old institution. It started in 1897. It was established to help care for individuals with children and mainly with chronic conditions, and also to be a teaching hospital to teach the next generation of care providers. It continues to be focused on individuals, again, mainly children with developmental disabilities. So thus, it's not a full-service hospital, so it's relatively small, but we are multidisciplinary. And as members of a multidisciplinary team, we monitor the effects of musculoskeletal growth on function. And if that is, uh, if a person is having trouble, then we'll oftentimes recommend bracing and physical therapy. And if it's more complex, it could be surgery, which unfortunately is quite commonly necessary for children and young adults with cerebral palsy. Thank you so much for that that sort of description. I think that's so helpful for families because oftentimes when they're having issues with their family member who has cerebral palsy or they're somewhere along their cerebral palsy journey, they don't necessarily fully know the differences of the different institutions and what makes a place like Gillette so special. And along those lines, I I really want to dive into a topic that we get so many questions about. And I know that patients that come to see you, you know, this is a, a really important topic. And that is the topic of gait, meaning how someone ambulates and walks and how that develops and evolves. Um, Dr. Georgiatis, could you explain a little bit for our audience how that process works? How does gait develop and, and how then, you know, does cerebral palsy impact, you know, that, that process? Absolutely. Human gait is a super interesting field of study, and I think that's what draws many people to both study it and treat it. Human beings are really unique in the animal world. A lot of animals, for evolutionary reasons, they walk on four legs or they're quadrupedal, and they need to be able to ambulate right away. But human beings are born with this big brain relative to their body, and they don't walk, usually for at least 12 months on average. And so what has to happen in the first year or so of life is there's this complex development between different reins, like the sides of your brain, your cerebral cortices, or the back of your brain that regulates coordination and balance your cerebellum, areas of your spinal cord. All of those need to develop together to slowly give you the coordination and control to move your body independently and walk. And so as I said, that usually takes between 9 and 18 months in human beings. And so you can see, because there's this complex symphony of things that needs to be happening all together in typical development, if one of those or multiple of those areas is disrupted, that's where you can have a delay in that walking. And that's what, and then, of course, your brain and your center of the system that controls your walking is actually acting on your musculoskeletal system. And so that can also be different in the condition of cerebral palsy as well. Does cerebral palsy also impact strength, you know, for people who have it either as children or as they get a little bit older and and bone and joint development? I think many families know that it impacts gait, but aren't maybe necessarily very clear on all of those other related, you know, issues and, and components. Yes, it does very profoundly. So, Cerebral palsy at heart is a neurological condition where something happened to the early developing brain, and that 
difference really doesn't change over time, but the way it manifests in someone's body can change over time. So in addition to those neurological things that I mentioned, particular, the muscles themselves are very different in individuals with cerebral palsy. There's a huge spectrum of involvement, but in general, the muscles and tendons tend to be stretched out, so they're longer than typical. They also tend to be thinner, so they have less volume. So if you can imagine a stretched out muscle that has less surface area, less volume, it generates less force. And then even at the cellular level, the cells that have to contract within the muscle, they tend to be less compliant, so they can't force the muscle to contract as nicely. And then also the material that the muscle is made out of is much stiffer, and there's a matrix within the muscle that tends to resist contraction. So for all those reasons, you need to control their muscle, and when they do, be weaker. Does so that, as a result of that, you can have bone and joint differences. Does that, what you described, because I think that is such important information for families to understand, is that across all sort of levels of cerebral palsy in terms of, you know, more mild to, to more severe? Or or does that, those challenges that you described with the muscles in particular, is that only for certain types of cerebral palsy? There's a huge spectrum of involvement from almost no discernible differences if a child has a very mild case, isolated to one specific part of their body to the other end of the spectrum where almost every aspect of their body, not just their limbs, but their core and axial skeleton, their swallowing ability, all of their muscles can be affected by that. So there's basically that spectrum that's almost not discernible to completely involved. And as you mentioned, there are some different subtypes of movement disorders, for example, where those differences are less pronounced, where it's more about the movement of the muscle than the architecture of the muscle. So every child is different in every adult spectrum. Thank you. And that's a great sort of transition to the next question for you, Dr. Novacek. And and this is one that that families are always looking for more information about. And that is the most common kind of gait patterns in cerebral palsy. We can see, you know, people with cerebral palsy often moving differently, walking differently. But a lot of families don't know, you know, that what that equates to in terms of the common gait patterns. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Do you have about five years? I can go through it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Great question. Thank you. Yeah, the gait patterns are really complicated, and they vary depending upon the pattern, as Dr. Georgiatis is mentioning. And, you know, for example, some people have bilateral involvement, you know, that goes by spastic diplegia or quadriplegia or unilateral, like hemiplegia cerebral palsy. And the patterns are, have some similarities, but some real differences. And in some ways, the unilateral involvement is a little simpler because we can actually identify very discrete patterns. And because of that, we can, you know, have more recognizable treatment indications and treatment philosophy. But things become really quite a bit more complicated for people with bilateral involvement. One thing that is common between the unilateral and bilateral effects are the adverse effects on bone and joint development. Basically, you have to know that children, babies, are not young adults. They do not have the alignment that we have as adults. 
So what this means is that through the process of growth and development, our skeleton needs to grow and remodel. So things like children are born with an increased femur twist that during typical development by three or four years of age is nearly adult alignment and by eight or nine is fully adult alignment. Those processes are off. So things like femoral antiversion, that abnormal twist of the femur or tibial torsional malalignments and the shin bone being out of alignment, twisted basically, you know, they're very, very common. So those things kind of go through many of these different patterns. And because of the increased variability, particularly for people with bilateral involvement, the treatments really need to be individualized. Now, having said that, some of the most common patterns that we deal with are crouch gait. So probably most people know what that is, but walking with an increased knee flexion. And again, the causes of crouch gait are really myriad. It could be strength or motor control, could be balance, could be knee flexion contractures and things like that. As Dr. Georgiatis mentioned before, if you're walking in crouch for an extended period of time, the muscles can actually, you know, some of the muscles could be short, but some of the muscles could actually be excessively long. So trying to identify those things and making sure that you use the right treatments are is really, really important. In addition to crouch gait, one of the most common patterns is toe walking. A lot of times when children, when they're young, they're just starting to walk with cerebral palsy. Toe walking is really, really frequent. So that's a very, very common pattern. Another common pattern that I, that's quite visual is called a scissoring gait, where as you're watching a person walk towards you, it looks like their, their knees are crossing over one another in kind of a scissoring pattern. So these are some of the more common patterns that we see. The challenge with all of them, every one of those three that I mentioned, crouch, toe walking, and scissoring, is that the causes for them for individuals is very, very different. And that's where having a multidisciplinary team, which means that you've got colleagues and friends that you work with who each have different skill sets and different perspectives, can now uh, can weigh in and communicate to help to the best ability. Thank you for that really thorough explanation. You did boil down five years in about just a couple of minutes for our audience. So that, that is helpful. And we will actually also be posting more information about this on cpresource.org as well as this episode and the transcript so our audience can can actually read your words later and refer back to them because I think that will be really helpful for everyone. You talked about the different gait patterns and now I would like Dr. Georgiatis, if you wouldn't mind tell, telling the audience a little bit about the challenges that can develop as a result of these three different main gait patterns at both like the child, the ch- in childhood with children, and then as they become teens, and then as adults, we get a lot of questions about that topic where adults feel that their cerebral palsy is getting worse. When we know the brain injury itself is not getting worse, but they may be, you know, experiencing other sorts of impact and decline in their function. Could you just talk as through the lifespan, some of the challenges that come up with these different gait patterns? 
Absolutely. It's a wonderful question. One of the biggest breakthroughs in understanding the developmental trajectory of individuals with cerebral palsy came about 25 years ago where children were studied longitudinally over time to see what happened with them and how their abilities developed and what happened as they grew. And what they discovered was that there are kind of different categories of motor independence that individuals have and that all children, no matter what their final function will be, all children tend to accrue skills until they're about age seven or maybe eight years of age. And then whatever level of independence an individual has at that point, it tends to be fairly static through the remainder of childhood. But some people who are a little bit more marginally independent, people who rely on others for mobility or require walking aids, a certain percentage of those individuals in the late teenage years or young adulthood will lose some ability, lose mobility more often or have increased reliance on others. So one of the things that we try to think about is who are going to be the older children or teens who might be more susceptible to losing skills or declining and who might be in danger of losing their endings. And so what Dr. Novacek just mentioned, these different walking patterns like crouch gait, for example, if those shapes of the bone do not remodel and change as they would in typical development and they're leading you to walk in a very exhausting, energy inefficient pattern, what we've noticed over time is that that particular gait pattern, for example, tends to be progressive, tends to get worse time. And if that's happening while you're getting older and heavier, it may put you at risk. And so in particular, in older children and in teenage years, we try to be very sensitive to how things are changing, that there's an orthopedic procedure that might maintain independence or maintain skills or prevent decline that we offer that. That is really good information. And I think that leads us right into our next question and topic, and that is the topic of gait analysis. A lot of families in our audience don't necessarily know what that even is or what, you know, how that can help their family member or themselves. So I would love, Dr. Novacek, if you could explain a little bit about what gait analysis is and, and why it's so important. Well, this one won't take nearly as long. Gait <laughs> <laughs> <Gate> analysis. Uh, <laughs> so I think we've kind of been talking about the fact that you can look at a person and you can say, oh, I think their gait is normal or their gait isn't normal. And, but, you know, beyond that, you might not be able to understand why it's not normal. So there are many different contributors to why people can have difficulty with gait. And it's highly variable. So all these things that we've been talking about can be contributors. And of course, you know, ultimately, the question is, if you're going to treat this difficulty with gait, what is the best treatment? And those best treatments do depend upon what those underlying causes and etiologies are. So beyond the visual observation of gait is what we can do with gait analysis. So in a gait lab, uh, there's a lot of pretty sophisticated equipment, including video cameras, motion capture markers are applied to the body and then we monitor the way that those markers move in the gait lab space and then we can understand how the hips are moving, the trunk is moving, what the knee pattern looks like and the ankle pattern and also gives us measures of these twisting bone and joint problems as well as kind of alluded to before with scissoring for example. So the the biggest thing that you can get out of a 
gait analysis uh, is this analysis of the movement. You know, technically that's called kinematics. That's the study of movement. And, you know, that's where it takes, currently it takes going to a gait lab to be able to do that. In addition, there are force plates in the floor, and that can help us understand the joint stresses. And I think one of the things that we haven't really quite talked about yet is maybe some of the so what. It's not just, okay, an abnormal gait pattern, uh, which can be important to people, but it can also lead to excessive stresses through the course of a person's lifetime so that in adulthood, it's possible that speech could become painful. Knee pain is fairly common with crouch gait because we know that the joint stresses are markedly increased compared to normal. And these are things that we can actually measure in the gait lab by combining the motion capture system with the force plates. Dr. Georgiatis mentioned about energy expenses. So we can also measure the amount of oxygen usage that a person does during, during a six-minute walk test. And then, you know, there's a couple of other things, but one of the other things that's important, because Cynthia, you brought it up a couple of times, is about the muscle activity and Dr. Georgiatis mentioned that, you know, cerebral palsy is a neurological condition, but it has these profound effects on the muscle function. So measuring the electrical activity using dynamic electromyography, or EFG, is also part of it and helps us to have an insight into abnormal tone patterns and abnormal muscle activation. Wow, that... That is great. I can already sense all of the questions that we're going to be getting on this topic coming in because it's one that a lot of families just aren't familiar with. And so that is that is really the next question is, how does the family know, you know, when they should be considering gait analysis, either for their child or their family member, or if they're adult, you know, is that something that's open to them as well? Dr. Georgiatis, could you talk a little bit about how a, a family or a person with cerebral palsy would, would begin to think about whether this is something they should consider? That's a wonderful question. And, you know, the short answer is that a family may not know and may not be able to figure out themselves if their child would benefit from this analysis. So, you know, really easy answer would be to say you have to find a specialist who's familiar with the technology enough to know if it would be worthwhile or beneficial for you. But if there's something that's different about someone blocking a child or an adult, it stands to reason that analyzing that gait pattern might be beneficial and collecting more objective information would be beneficial. But an important thing to know is that the test does take time and resources and it's fairly labor-intensive for everyone involved, not just the treating team or the analyzing team, but for the family as well who might have to travel a distance to do it. So we should be really good stewards of resources and only employ it when we really think it'd be helpful. So the short answer is basically you have to ask your doctor, and your doctor, if you're not familiar with it, may have to refer you. You know, if you lived in this part of the country and you were far away and it wasn't practical for you to come to the Twin Cities to find out, that's the reason that medicine is changing and you have virtual visits now where I can talk to you three states away and watch your child walk and try to direct you in one way or another. So I think that medicine is changing so fast that you'll be able to get an easier answer to this question very soon if it's before you right now. Oh, that's 
really helpful. And so that, of course, the, the key question that families then will, will are wondering, of course, is, is gait analysis usually covered by insurance? And Dr. Georgiatis, what you just mentioned about sort of the telehealth option, is that something that families could actually access and make that kind of appointment at Gillette right now? That, that would be really great for people to know. Well, the telehealth option is available and there are state regulations about where you can do telehealth. But for example, if you lived in the upper Midwest and you lived in any one of eight states in which I have a medical license, I could talk to you, you know, virtually to you. And it varies a little bit by what state you're in and what rules there are. But we also do things at our hospital like talk to you on the phone and can get a sense from that without a formal visit to try and direct you and be good stewards of your care. And Dr. Novacek and I do that routinely. And we're admittedly in a unique situation where there isn't as much pressure on us to do otherwise, where we're basically just told to do the right thing at all times. And that's how we we comport ourselves. So for us specifically, that would be available to almost anyone. So I'll let Dr. Novacek uh, supplement that answer. But the short answer is yes. That's very refreshing to hear. I love it. That's that's great. And Dr. Novacek, could could you talk about gait analysis? I know it, it must vary by insurance plan, but in general, is is gait analysis usually covered by insurance? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a big question, a very important question. As Dr. Georgiadis mentioned, you know, it's a relatively time intensive and thus it's relatively expensive. It's actually pretty comparable to getting an MRI scan, you know, which would be in the range of, you know, several thousand dollars, which in the grand scheme of things, if you're talking about, uh, you know, using it to help you make the right decisions for a big decision like a surgery, you know, the surgery and the hospital stay rehabilitation much more expensive than that. So it's, it's relatively inexpensive in our opinion to be able to make more informed decisions to make the quote unquote right decision and most in particular to avoid making the wrong decisions, which can lead to iatrogenic complications. You know, the the difficulty that unlike an MRI scan where you can have a radiologist who can read it and, you know, most of us can look at pictures and we can understand the pictures pretty well, the gate graphs are different. So Andy did kind of talk about the fact that you know, having somebody trained in the expertise of being able to interpret the gait analysis graphs to make those right decisions is, is really, really important. Along with that, though, over the course of the past 30 years or so since gait analysis has been more broadly available, there is an increasing body of evidence that shows its value. And as such, it's becoming more commonly covered without as many challenges by insurance. You know, in the past, it was experimental or for research purposes and things like that. But as the quality has improved and the evidence of its value has increased, more insurances are covering it. So, you know, our insurance companies and the contracts that our hospital have with them, you know, work pretty well. Medical assistance in general, you know, which most kids and people with disabilities qualify for. Uh, also, we don't get big challenges from. So, and as Cynthia has mentioned early on, you know, it does depend upon the insurance company and it is variable. 
what we do is is we have a commitment to our patients, and Dr. Georgiana has mentioned this a couple times already. Our commitment is to our patients and to doing the right thing. So if we think the right thing is a gait analysis, we're going to fight with you for it. That is so wonderful to hear. And and now that leads right into the next question, Dr. Novacek, because we know right now people listening are going to want to know how to locate a gate lab because they're not everywhere. Most people wouldn't know how to begin looking for one or where to where to go. Could you could you make some suggestions Great. on how a family might locate a gate lab? Absolutely. You know, there are actually some good resources available that you don't have to be members of the societies in order to to access. So I'm going to mention two websites that you can go to that have maps that show the uh, gate lab. So the first is gcmas.org. So that's gate and clinical movement analysis society.org. And that has Again, a map of all the gate labs that are members of that society. So basically, that's our North American Professional Society for Gate Analyses. We share research, we have meetings every year, and have collaborative projects. The other one is the accrediting body for gate labs. So that's the Commission for Motion Lab Analysis, CMLA, and their website is CM. As in Mary, C-M-L-A-I-N-C dot O-R-G. And that, again, that site has the accredited lab. So over the course of the past 15 to 20 years, there's been the board of the Commission on Motion Lab Accreditation that has created this pretty rigorous process to make sure and assure the quality of gate labs. And there are now about, I just looked at it the other day, I think about 15 or 16 labs across the country that have gone through that accreditation process. And across the country overall, the total number of gate labs is 30 or 40. That's fantastic information. And for our audience, we will include those links and that information on cpresource.org associated with this podcast episode so that you will easily be able to find that information as well. Now I want to change the topic just slightly to talk about something that is really on the minds of many families with family member with cerebral palsy, and that is the more common evidence-based orthopedic surgical interventions. There is a lot of uncertainty among families. They hear a lot of different things. It's hard to find information or consistent opinions about what evidence-based surgical interventions might be for someone with cerebral palsy. And it would really be helpful for our audience to hear a little bit about that and what the common surgical interventions that are evidence-based are. So Dr. Georgiatis, could you talk a little bit about some of those interventions? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, we should always emphasize that many children with cerebral palsy may not need a surgical intervention, but since we have a focus on this, we're going to talk about, you know, orthopedic procedures in particular. I think that when you're talking to a medical provider, you have to be very clear as a family or a patient about what your goals are and what's important to you and what's difficult to you. And getting at that and what you want to improve is really important so that the care team can make a treatment plan that addresses 
what you see in addition to what they see and what they think should be a goal for you. You know, in general, when we talk about orthopedic surgery in patients with cerebral palsy, what we try to do is support these differences in walking and the shape of the legs for the first six, seven, eight years of life with bracing or therapies or other interventions. And then if there are differences in the shapes of the bones or there's an abnormal gait pattern that's leading to difficulty, we treat it with something called multi-level surgery if there are many things to be treated we do it all at once so if the child only has one recovery or one rehabilitation and they're not having multiple episodes of surgery and recovery throughout their childhood. So that's the paradigm that we have in our minds to minimize the impact on quality of life and burden for everyone. And also if we adhere to that, that means that there's less likely that the issues in the legs will recur because it was done at a later point in childhood and the child's a little bit older and more developed and we're convinced those differences in the leg shape weren't going to get them. And so if you look for evidence for something like multi-level surgery and cerebral palsy, there are actually clinical trials that have performed. And one of the things that is really interesting is that we're really good at changing the structure of the body. We can do that with very high success. But what we care about even more and what families care about even more is did we change the gait of that child? And what's interesting is that the gait, if you have multi-level surgery, does change significantly. In particular, there's been a randomized trial in Australia with some of our colleagues that's shown this. And uh, even more important than that, if you have multi-level surgery and you have cerebral palsy, what you care about the most is how does your function change? Not just what do the lines on the graph do or what does the shape of the bone look like? How did that affect your quality of life and your ability and that also improves after multi-level surgery, but it also takes quite a long time. So this big commitment to multi-level surgery, if it happens to you or your loved one, it's important to know that the recovery from that is quite significant. You to see improvements for 12 to 24 months after. And so there's a lot of layers to that, but it's important for everyone to kind of be clear about what are the goals of the intervention. We can reliably change the shape of the body if we need to, or the shape of the muscle if we need to, and then the improvements in walking and then the improvements in your function are pretty predictable, but they take longer to occur. That, that is, that's so helpful. And that actually leads in right to the next question. If you could talk a little bit about once you, you know, once a person would have, for example, you know, multiple procedures at once or, or really any orthopedic surgery, can you talk about the importance of rehabilitation after the fact and physical therapy after an orthopedic surgery or... Once the surgery is done, is is that not that important? It seems certainly like it is very important, but I know families would love to hear from you, you know, on that topic. Rehabilitation is critically important, and depending on the type of cerebral palsy or someone's level of independence, even without surgery, a regular exercise program and strength training progressive strength training in particular has been shown to improve function in individuals which are both life involved in the condition. And that comes from the surgical studies as well. They noticed that patients who had, instead of surgery, progressive strength training had modest improvements in their function with therapy as well. So even if you're not under consideration for surgery or surgeries in the future, prehabilitation is very important. And then if we do a surgery and we don't have the right regimen after looking for. So the therapy has to be directed specifically at the 
safety. So, for example, at our hospital, if you have a certain procedure around the knee, there's a protocol for exactly what should happen in your rehabilitation based on experience. And if there's a slight variation in the surgery based on principles, the rehabilitation. And so we try to control that as much as we can, not only for the benefit of the patient and the family, but also so that we can be objective. And if something isn't going well or we're not adhering to that, that we so. Uh, there's lots of reasons that the rehabilitation before surgery, without surgery, and definitely after surgery. I love that topic of prehabilitation. We we hadn't really you know discussed that a lot in terms of just information to share with families. Is is it normal or common that when at Gillette, when there might be a recommendation for surgery, do you often give the patients a regimen or recommendation of what to do ahead of time in that respect? I will routinely refer a patient to physical therapy before a major intervention uh, that's upcoming. I particularly do that if the child has not been having an exercise program or, as we know, in the last two years, services at school or daily life has been really disrupted. So people have not been in the exercise or the PT that they only. So particularly now that's important. And then also, I want the patient and the family to try and establish a relationship with the person that's going to be helping them rehabilitate after surgery. So I think that's really important because you have to with your physical therapist and your occupational self. I think that's really important. And then there are all kinds of other things that we could talk about, for example, we also do a lot of inpatient rehabilitation. If we have taken a child off of their legs for a number of weeks to recover, that initial few weeks is very important. And the facilitation team before a major intervention in anticipation of coming after surgery into the hospital to do intensive events. Great. Thank you so much for that information. And now, Dr. Novacek, I think the good segue there is how can families learn more about interventions, you know, the various interventions that might benefit their child or their family member. I think that is a quest, you know, that many families are on and have been on of finding the right sources. That's one of the reasons we created cpresource.org is to, you know, to pull information together. But in when it comes to specific interventions or procedures or, or things along those lines, what do you recommend in terms of how families can learn more? I think I can I can help answer that in that one of the ways that you can get oriented to the landscape of possible care models or places that you can receive care is going online. I think that that's the first place that many of us go for information these days. And that can take the form of things like the CP Foundation and other websites where caregivers and public figures and families are brought together. They can get you oriented, like, where are people going for care and what are the centers that are the most experienced and respected? And you can get into discussions with other family members and find out where they have felt, like, really well cared for. So I think maybe the important thing to emphasize is if you Google cerebral palsy, you're going to find lots of hospitals, sites, and information. But before making a commitment to linking up with a particular place, if it were me or my family member, I would try to talk to those who have been cared for at that facility if I could and get a sense if they really felt cared for and if they thought a thoughtful approach had been employed. I think that is the thing that would make me proceed. And I know that... I'll chime into that. Oh, good. There. Okay, great. <laughs> good. Yeah, sorry, Cynthia. Yeah. I'll, I'll chime in as well. I'll, I, I think the work that you're 
are doing with CP Foundation and the resources that you have is, is really critical. Uh, it's, a, it's a big advancement. I know that many of my patients and prospective patients have found value there. And I would also just point to people to two other resources. I already, I've already mentioned the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy Developmental Medicine. It is the largest professional society in North America for providers of care for children with disabilities. So you can look for resources there. That are, as an organization, we are trying to make sure that we're involving stakeholders in, in all the committee work and the strategic plan so patients and families are involved. Because there's a physician finder feature on that website, and we will include all of that information as well on the show notes for this podcast episode. One other question about resources and information, would families find it helpful to visit the Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare website for other information as well? Would that be a useful a useful resource for information? Well, we do on our website have some uh, detailed information about the rehabilitation protocols that Andy mentioned before and also about some of the technical aspects of the surgeries. And then some of the work that we're doing with you, Cynthia, there with the CP Foundation, you know, we'll be adding some more information over time. Yes, we're very excited about being able to build out that information. We know families are really eager to learn more. So thank you for for that. And now I want to turn to a more personal question that our families would really like to hear your insight on. And that is, I'll start with, with you, Dr. Georgiatis, on this. What What is some of the best advice you can give families who might be at the beginning of their cerebral palsy journey or early in the process, they have a child who's just recently been diagnosed or, you know, is young and they're just, you know, not exactly sure how, you know, to think about it and to, to proceed. If you're in that situation where you're just establishing care or you're looking for the first care for your loved one, I would try to find in your city or state or region the center that's made a commitment to the treatment of those patients because while there certainly can be biases from any hospital or any particular mode of thought, if there are providers who are seeing patients with palsy every day, every week, thinking about it all the time, for example, Gillette has had this commitment for over a century, it tends to mean that they are more available to you, that they have resources, that they have more expertise if you value their personal experience. So it means that you'd be going to a place that views you as another, I shouldn't say routine, but as the kind of patients they see on a regular basis, as opposed to a place where you're there with your condition or how you might respond to treatment. So I think experience does matter because the institution or the hospital or the system will have resources and then the individual providers will be used to taking care of you and have a frame of mind. And so at the same time, if you're not medically conversant advancing online, so I would have a healthy skepticism for anything that sounds too good to be true. I think as physicians, one of the first committees to not do harm. And while we know that there are lots of things we can do to help, it's probably even more important not to do harm. So I would read about but stay away from things that build themselves as miraculous or immediately effective and personal world doesn't want you to know about. It's unlikely that those things are in conversation with experienced doctors is the way that you talk that out. 
Yeah, we try to. Uh, about yeah. adults. Oh, sorry. But, yes. No. Go ahead. Oh no, and then adults adults transition to adult care is this difficult thing that you just have to navigate in your own environment. And the best advice is to try and think about that for uh, an older child or a teen before rehabilitation physicians can be your point. Yes, that that's great information. Uh, I one thing we encourage families not to do is to rely on Doctor Google. <laughs> so we, <laughs> I know, you know, often when you just Google, for example, cerebral palsy, what you what you mostly get a first is personal injury lawsuit websites and all sorts of things that are not exactly helpful. So we really want to encourage, you know, how to find reliable resources that will provide, you know, very good information to families. So thank you for for that, those suggestions. And Dr. Novacek, uh, this is really our wrap-up question for today's amazing episode. But I just would like to have you sort of share with the audience any other last words of advice, encouragement, and any other thoughts you have about how families, you know, can learn more. Well, thank you, Cynthia. It has been a pleasure today. I really enjoyed this, and I hope people find it helpful. We've mentioned along the course of the way that you need to educate yourself to be able to advocate. You know, if you're a parent and you've got a young child who has been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, you know, that can be just overwhelming. And the variability of condition can lead to a lot of misinformation. So, you know, in order to be able to advocate for your child, you need to educate yourself. And, you know, you also need to understand that there are many unproven treatments, uh, you know, that are out there that, you know, are widely advertised. So to be able to avoid those things and really find a center where you've got a team that can provide coordinated and comprehensive care. Again, because this condition of CP is such a mixed bag, varying complexity, variable nature of the condition and manifestations. So um, finding that team that has a quarterback in it, because you will need as a as the family member, or if you're an adult, you need to be the quarterback of your own care. But it's really hard to do that when you don't know the whole playing field. So having a center where we can partner with you to be that quarterback so that you can get your orthopedic care, your physiatry care, your rehabilitation needs, your tone management, you know, all in one place, along with bracing so that you, you don't have you know, what I hear a lot from families is that, well, I go to see this person and they recommend this. And then I go to talk to my orthopedic surgeon and I say that and then I get a different recommendation and so on and so forth. It's really, really very difficult. And I think maybe the other thing that I would like to finish with, if uh, it makes sense, is that treatment is evolving. What we're doing today is not what was done 30 or 40 years ago. So the traditional treatments, you know, were what was done at the time, we've learned that we can do much better than that. My predecessor, Dr. Gage, you know, saw that when he went to Connecticut to practice in the 1970s. And it's nothing unique to Connecticut. It was a state of the art at the time. He was seeing people come back in adulthood who'd had these traditional treatments. And he saw that we needed to do better. And he helped to usher in the 
current state of modern-day gait analysis with multidisciplinary care, including tone reduction. And so many of those uh, treatments are now available that just were not 30, 40 years ago. So finding a center that's academic, that's up-to-date, and uses a data-driven approach is really, really so important. So we need to be able to have thoughtful treatments that don't cause harm and that can help a person do better by treating the manifestations of the condition. Cynthia, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, I I just really love those words, what you just described, because it is exciting to see that there are advances being made and that the treatment today and the options today have advanced, you know, from what they were 30 years ago. You know, many families, you know, aren't sure that that was happening. So it's really wonderful to hear you explain that that actually is the case. And I just want to thank you both for your time today, taking time out of your busy schedules. We so appreciate it. So Dr. Novacek, Dr. Georgiatis, thank you so much for joining us and being our guests on Let's Talk CP. We also want to thank all of you for listening today. This episode is made possible with the support of Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare, and we look forward to next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk CP. I'm Jason Benetti, CPF ambassador and sports television announcer. If you like our show and want to know more, please visit our new CP resource page at cpresource.org, where you can listen to all of our episodes and subscribe so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in Let's Talk CP, we'd appreciate a rating. And please tell a friend or another family member about the show to help others and increase cerebral palsy awareness and education. Be sure to tune in to Let's Talk CP for our next episode. This podcast represents the opinions of our guests and the content should not be taken as medical advice. Each person and situation is unique, so please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.